0: But Paul wants to remind us this morning and all through the book of Ephesians that you do have a father and he doesn't simply mimic our earthly father as if he's some like beefed up version no he's in fact a perfect father that all other fathers pattern after and they either do this poorly or they do this well more devilish or more godly so this morning I want us to consider what it's like to imitate God our good and perfect heavenly father And Paul wants us to see this all throughout the book of Ephesians. Here's just a few examples. Ephesians 1.3 says that our Father blesses us and loves us. Ephesians 1.17, our Father gives us the Spirit. Ephesians 3.14, our Father names us. Ephesians 4.3, our Father is above all and in all and through all. He's a good dad. Now Paul is turning in this letter. In the first three chapters, we saw all there is to see in Jesus. And now we're pivoting to consider all there is to be. In Jesus. And Pastor Ian walked through the text in Ephesians 4, and I like the way that it puts it. It says, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity and truth. And so this morning, we're going to consider how we ought to walk it out. Now walk it out, is what Paul is saying, in effect. East side, walk it out. West side, walk it out. And all other directions, walk it out. That's what we're considering But I also want us to consider that this is our Father's world. God created this world. And our Father has intentional design of the way he has structured and set things up. I think a lot of times we think it's arbitrary. We think it's random. We don't see the purpose. But I want to put before you this morning that God has a good design and he's teaching us what it means to live the good life. Now the world and the culture around me say this is not what the good life looks like. But I want to put before you that this is our Father's world. He has created this world intentionally so that we may live the good life. He doesn't keep silent, but he tells us what it means to do this. So this morning, we're going to look at three points. One's going to be beefy. Hang in there. The other one's going to be less beefy, but still beefy. And then the other one is going to be a tease for a series that we're doing next, basically. Um, But this is our main idea. In Christ, we imitate God by walking in love, light, and wisdom. In Christ, we imitate God by walking in love, light, and wisdom. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us in our time. Uh, Father God, we stand before you needy, sinners in need of a Savior. We pray that you meet us in this place. I pray that what we have not, you would give us. What we know not, you would teach us. Where we are not, you would make us. I pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So first, we're going to look at walking in love. Walking in love. Uh, Begins, picks up in verse 1, where we're told, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So, we're to imitate the Father. God is love. He is the source and fountain of all love. Because he precedes all things... He set up love. He was perfectly loving before we were ever here. From eternity past, he's been in a loving relationship. And we look at how the Father's love imitates this specific love, that we're to imitate the specific love. It's not, it's uh, the, the slogan that goes around, that you've probably seen on a yard sign, love is love. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Blue is blue. Amen. <laughs> now, what does that mean? We have to fill this with content, so that's what we're going to be looking at. We imitate the Father, but we also are imitating the love of the Son. First, Father. How did the Father love us? We see this in Ephesians 1, 5. Pastor Ian had an amazing sermon on Ephesians 1, 5. I commit it to you. But in Ephesians 1, 5, it says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of will. In love, he adopted us. We were outside of the family, but now we're inside the family. And we cry, Abba. Individually, we are sons and daughters. Corporately, we are brothers and sisters. So you could say that Ephesians 1.5 and Ephesians 5:1 really go together. They're glued together. We cannot understand the love of God apart from our adoption story. Apart from our adoption story. In 1.5, you see that in love, you have been adopted. And then in a five-one, you you're told, now imitate this. Imitate this. But were we adopted when we had it all together? When we were lovely? When we had finally uh, figured it all out? Put the pieces together? Stop sinning? No, of course not. Paul tells us throughout the letter that we were alienated, broken, hostile in mind and body, disobedient, children of wrath, sinful, dead. It's pretty bleak. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. He loved us first. This is an initiating type of love for the unlovely, the broken, the vulnerable, the enslaved, the abused, those dead in their sins, hostile in mind, disobedient, sinful. You're getting the picture. This is a love that initiates to those who are unlovely. And so there's two quick ways that I think we imitate the Father. There's many, many others that we could go into, but the time's rolling. One, we imitate the Father by sharing the gospel. By sharing the gospel, which brings orphans home to the love of the Father. In other words, we seek to have many spiritual children. We seek to do this. This is what God does. He sees us, broken humanity, and he comes after us to adopt us. The other way we do this is by imitating the love of the Father and caring for the fatherless and the motherless. This is a theme throughout the scriptures. And so we seek to cultivate a culture, an adoption culture, a foster culture here at the King's Church. And I, unprompted, last night I got a text from a brother who's in the process of going through adoption. And he said, hey, can I put you on the newsletter? He's a member here at the King's Church. And I'm grateful for the adoption and foster culture that we have here. I'm grateful for that. But how can you display this type of love, this type of love that sees the unlovely and moves towards them in love, on one hand? And then on the other hand, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how ought this change the way we view one another? Dearly loved children of God, the person you're upset with is a dearly loved child of God. The person you haven't talked to in a while, dearly loved child of God. How could this change the way we love one another. And then, uh, on the adoption side, how can we excel still more in this? How can we excel still more? Not out of the sense of earning anything from God, but joyfully in response to our adoption. How can we do this? Some of you have been sitting on paperwork to go ahead and become foster parents. Maybe this is a way that you imitate God. For some of you, it looks like financially supporting the work of adoption and foster care. If you've been on the fence about any of this. Let this be a nudge to at least have a conversation with my brother Rob. He would love to talk to you about the work of adoption and foster care. Uh, No, we'll move on. We imitate God's love in this way. But secondly, we imitate the love of the Son. It should already be evident, it's evident to me, even in preparation, that I can't do that. I fall and fail at that constantly, so we imitate the love of the Son. But before we can imitate the love of the Son, we need the Son. We need the Son. Before we can imitate him, we need him as Savior. In verse 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we've seen throughout Ephesians, our adoption hinges on the work of Christ on our behalf. Before we imitate, we must become. So, we spend most of our days not loving in this way. We were made for joy, settled for pleasure. We were made to love God and others, and instead we settle for loving ourselves and just tolerating others, or worse, even using others. We do not love as we should. We do not imitate God as we should. We need a Savior, and Christ here says that He walked in love and gave Himself up for us. We need the good news of, of Christ's love, not only as our Uh, example, but as the power we need to actually walk in this, consider just a few things that Christ did in love that we ought to imitate. The Son of God came to earth in love, the incarnation. The Son of God lived among us in love. The Son of God suffered in blood and died in love, bore the wrath of our sin in love, was raised on the third day in love, pours out His Holy Spirit in love, and then rules the church in love. And all of this enables us to then love, gives us the power, puts the batteries in that we're not there to enable us to love. We love only in response. Christ loved us first. If we get the order out of whack, we're going to try to earn our salvation through works. The good news always precedes the to-dos. The indicatives of the gospel always precede the imperatives, which is why the first half of the book is all about doctrine. And the second half moves into culture. We are loved by Jesus, therefore we love. We've been given everything in Christ, therefore we give. We've been brought into the light, therefore we shine. We've been crucified with Christ, therefore we live and move and have our being. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, whether or not you realized it, the Spirit of God was poured out into your heart that actually gave you the batteries you needed To love. To love. So it gives us a new pattern of love. And we'll see that here in the second half of the text. It says, and Christ gave himself. So first we see a horizontal reality. We love people. We don't get to be cantankerous Christians who say, I don't like people. That's odd. God loves them. We ought to love them. Christ loves them. We love them. See, the pattern that we had before was a pattern of your life for mine. But at the cross of Christ, we see that the pattern of our love is my life for yours. Love is a passion that leads us to an action. 1 John puts it this way, by this we know love. By this we know that Christ loved us. He laid down his life. My life for yours. My life for yours. Romans 5, eight. but God shows. Some translations render it, demonstrates God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love according to the times is a little bit more like this. This is a caricature, so just bear with me. You fall in and out of it. Love is fleeting. It's a feeling. Only. Until love fades, do us part. Literally heard that at a wedding a couple weeks ago. Until the love fades. Love tends to be more defined by Hallmark movies than the Word of God. And we're told in First John also that God is love. Where are we going for our definition? Instead, our love should be marked by and patterned in forgiving as you've been forgiven. Showing patience. Aiding those in need. Giving without any expectation of return. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of Christ displaying love for all people, not only people who think, look, and talk like you. This is Christ's love for us, and we imitate it. So that's a little bit of our love toward people horizontally. But the other part, and I think equally significant, because this is really hard to do. This is really hard to do, and our flesh fights against this reality. So on the hard days where it's really hard to love your spouse, where it's really hard to love your kids, where it's really hard, kids, to love your parents. I don't know. I heard a silent amen somewhere from one of those groups. We do the second part of Ephesians 5 too. We offer this as a fragrant offering of sacrifice to God. We offer this back to God. Do you see love in the scriptures as primarily a sense, out of a sense of sympathy I love or out of commandment or out of sacrifice? This is sacrificial offering to God. No one may see you doing the laundry. Worship as unto the Lord. No one may see you doing the right thing. God sees. God sees. Worship him in this way. Love as worship. Love as an offering. And then the offering language, just because I've been in the book of Leviticus all month, which is kind of weird, but I'm weird. It's all right. But the word offering is always there's, there's offerings that are free will that we just bring to the Lord out of a thankful heart. And then it says in the scriptures that those offerings of just a free will of thanksgiving and overflow are a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. And so I'm going to ask you some more weird questions about that. Is your life smell like this? Does your life smell? Weird, you didn't think you'd be asked that at church this morning. Some of y'all smell great. Some of y'all may need to uh, visit the shower. That's all right. That's all right. All of our life, we lay down an offering. I'm offering this primarily to the Lord, secondarily to those around me. In the hard days of marriage, let your love be a fragrant act of worship to God, not Primarily to your spouse. To God. Let your marriage be an aroma. Let your work be an aroma. Your study be an aroma. Your parenting be an aroma. The way you eat and drink and dance be an aroma of thanksgiving to the Lord. Some of y'all can really dance. Some, it's an aroma. It's a joyful gyration (laughs) to the Lord. I fall in the latter category. A joyful gyration. So we see in the first section that everything in our life flows out of this. God wants us to fully consecrate ourselves to him. Everything in life. And then out of this place, he, I love that Paul starts with walking in love because out of love flows all of the ethics, flows all of the indicatives, all of the imperatives, all of the commands flow from love and imitating the Father and the Son in this. And that pattern shows up in every area of ethics it shows up in sexual ethics and how we deal with our money and how we deal with our speech in all of these ways in all of life we walk in love any one of these detached or divorced from the other looks like a kind of weird smelling life if you just are over here walking in love but there's never a walking in light you land in a weird place. If there's all walking in wisdom but no walking in light, in, you see what I'm saying? It's like one of those weird circle diagrams where you're trying to like, right there in the middle. Maybe no one understood the, what I just said. That's fine too. That's fine. We'll keep moving. So the next thing we see is that we are to walk in life in verses 3 through 14. But 3 through 14 kind of hinges on verse 8, which says this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says, you were this and now you're that. He doesn't say, and this is important, you were in darkness and now you are in light. He does not say that. He's not locating us in one or the other kind of fluidly moving. He says, you were darkness, now you are light. This is who we are. The book of Ephesians, many have said, is really a story of us becoming what we are, becoming what we are. And then he lists some sins that are dark. But really at the core of all of these sins, he says, is really idolatry. He kind of throws, he has a couple throwaway statements that really crack the code of the passage, I think. In verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, who is covetousness, and then in the parentheses, this is an idolater. This is an idolater. And at the root of all of these sins... Is idolatry All these sins are consequences Of idolatry We need the right object of worship If we try to put any of these other things In the place of God They will destroy you They will destroy you Your life and everyone around you It will Maybe it will take a little bit of time Or maybe a lot of time But it will happen Your, my, our problem Is ultimately a worship problem Which is why at the King's Church we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus. Because we believe that the closer I'm getting to Christ in worship, the further I'm moving away from these things. To live a godly life. And spoiler alert, flashing to the end of the story, these things won't exist in the kingdom. So why would we indulge in them now? True joy awaits. Why would we settle for squalor? Romans 1, Paul gets at this too, when he says that we make created things God things. And disintegration results, twisting, fracturing, chaos, death. Our life always, always follows our heart. And so Paul addresses a couple of different areas. This is another one of those things, quick, quick, quick aside. Um, when I was a kid, I did not like vegetables. But I had never tasted and seen that the Brussels sprout is good. <laughs> I had never done that. And with the coffee, I eventually grew up to love it and enjoy it and crave it and want it. And my prayer for you, even in this moment, as we talk through these things, that these things that may seem vegetable-like to you would become more of the routine diet of your Christian walk. The gospel is a sweet bacon and balsamic marinade on the vegetables. It's amazing. It's good stuff. The first thing that we're going to look at is sexual immorality. Now, this is a very common starting place for Paul in his list. In Corinthians and other places, he places sexual immorality at the top of the list. Here, this is uh, the Greek word porneia. This is where we obviously get the word pornography. This is basically a junk drawer. You know the junk drawer in your house where all the random stuff goes in? This is a category, a, a junk drawer, if you will, of all sexual sin. Inside this drawer, you would find behind the bill that you should pay, Fornication, being sex before marriage. Adultery, sex outside of marriage. Homosexual practice. A heart full of lust. Jesus would even say in Matthew 5. What do you do with these sins? What do you do with these sins? Growing from the soil of idolatry. Says we should be putting these sins to death. That there shouldn't even be a hint of them among us. Paul says. Not even a hint. How close can you get? As a, as a pastor, you get a lot of those questions. How close can I get and still be, still be square? And so what we've done is we've created a base system. And on the base system, you know, okay, over if I hit a bunt and then I run to first, I'm still safe. But if I run to se- like, when am I okay? And I think that's missing the heart of the text altogether. It's not about how far can I go. It's how may I please the Lord. This is a crucial distinction. We ought to be putting these sins to death to please our Father. Because our Father is good and He is not withholding anything from us. Anything from us. God created, invented sex. Sex is good. But sin distorts and twists it. Just think even what we were just talking about. The twisting and the distortion of sex says, your life for mine. Your life for mine. But in God's world, it's my life for yours. Over the long haul. For a life. Monogamous marriage is in view. We're to use God's gifts in God's way. God's gifts in God's way. My life for yours. Self-giving love. I'm not holding anything back. Everything I have is yours. Which is beautiful. Which is a beautiful thing. But when we come to a text like this. A lot of times uh, we're looking for a loophole. Who's looking for a loophole? I'm gonna Google and see, uh, well, okay, I don't know. Again, what are we asking? How close can I get? Or what pleases the Lord? I want to please the Lord. He has given us new hearts that desire to please him. The question isn't how close can I get? The question is what pleases the Lord? So, two quick thoughts. These are all kind of scattered thoughts here. One, if you're struggling in this area, which, who is not struggling in this area? Be known. Step into the light. Repent of the sin in a group, in a community of grace. And if someone comes to you with the sin, on the other end of it, receive them as Christ received you. And on the other end of it, some of us, brothers and sisters, need to strongly consider taking this and getting a flip phone. The access that we have to anything and everything is not good for us, especially in regards to this area. Within two clicks, you can be anywhere. Brothers and sisters, consider it not out of earning anything from God, but simply as a response. I do not want to be stuck in this. It's a trap. Star Wars it's a trap. It is a trap. We need to name them, bring them into the light to be healed and do this together. May this be a safe place for us to do that. Next, uh, Paul jumps into uh, greed and covetousness. Greed and covetousness. And I I love what Jesus, Jesus' entire ministry, he talks about money a lot. And usually what he says is, watch out, watch out, you might be greedy. You might be greedy. Jesus says that we ought to watch out because greed is sneaky. It's very sneaky. See, we live in a very, 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 very materialistic culture. If it's sexually charged, it is material-driven. And other sin shows up publicly, but greed slowly erodes us privately. Privately. And Jesus says, watch out. I love what Martin Luther said. Um, he's an old reformer, uh, dead guy. Um, He wrote that there are three conversions necessary the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Of these three, it may be well said that we find the conversion of the purse to be the most difficult. Where do we place our trust? Again, these are growing in the soil of idolatry. The second thing is from Charles Spurgeon, who writes With some Christians, the last part of their nature that never gets sanctified is their pockets. Do you feel that this morning? (laughs) May the Lord sanctify our pockets more and more. We hide behind language of stewardship, all the while concealing greedy hearts. We baptize it with Christian language when really what it is is assimilating to the the culture. Mm, In the areas that I fall into this, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. You have given me everything. I give everything in response. My life for yours. And then the next thing that he talks about is obscene and foolish talking, or crude joking. Foolish talk, all through the Proverbs, all through Ecclesiastes, is frowned upon. This doesn't mean that we can't joke, we can't have a good time. But I think it's interesting that that speech is integrated in between greed and sex. What makes sex seem more commonplace to you? Joking about it. Our language distorts it. It moves as, oh something that we couldn't joke about 50 years ago to now we joke, to now we joke. Laughter is good. We're told all throughout the Bible laughter is good. There's nothing that we at the King's Church love more than a good laugh. We've got some joyful people. Praise God. But sin again creeps in and distorts these good things. Is your speech edifying? Are your jokes at others' expense? You will give an account, I will give an account for every word said every word said but why is all this such a big deal we alluded to it before but we'll read this section all of this is a big deal because like we said this isn't going to exist in the kingdom it's not going to exist in the kingdom and if this is what defines you not something that we struggle with fall in and out of if this is something that defines you now let this morning be a warning to turn to christ but he says in verse 5 for you may be sure of this that everyone Who is sexually immoral or impure or uh, covetous, covetous, covetous. That is an idolater. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them or partners with them. One day, none of these things will be present. None of them at all. All will be done away with. Live like it now. Bring the kingdom to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Paul's getting after. But I think the question for those of us in the room, uh, walking in the Christian life, do Christians fall into these sins? Of course we do. But hear me, Christians do not persist in these sins. There is a sober warning here. Persisting in these sins is a graceless state. A graceless state. What good, Jesus would say, is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What good is a momentary sexual thrill in comparison with an eternal kingdom? Trading minutes and moments for eternity? It's not worth it. The juice is not worth the squeeze. And what are... uh, the, the next throwaway, the first was idolatry. The second one is he tells us how to do this in the most simplistic terms, which I love about Paul. He says that ingratitude is actually what leads us to more and more and more sin. Instead, he says, let there be thanksgiving. Paul is after our hearts. In contrast with the darkness, with the lights, he says give thanks. All of these sins at the end of the day are self centered in nature and thanksgiving is the antidote of sin. We need the right object of worship. We resemble what we revere. We resemble what we revere. In 2 Corinthians 3:18, this is our change. This is the mechanism. This is what changes us. 2 Corinthians 3:18 says, "And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being by beholding the Lord we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Which leads us to the light. That was the talk of the darkness. Now we'll jump into the light. Goodness, right, righteousness, and truth. Verses 9 and 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. But why do we do this? We do this for two reasons. To expose But not purely for the sake of exposing, but to expose with the intent to transform. See this in 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Display your new identity that you have received by grace become what you are bring this light into the darkness for the sake of transforming the darkness in the same way that the darkness was exposed in you and led you to the foot of the cross this is why we do what we do it says in verse 14 for anything that becomes visible is light it's happening it's happened to us it can happen to any one anything in this world. Evil can be transformed. I love that it's basically just an alarm clock. It's not a jolting. It's the kindness of Lord, the, the Lord that leads us to repentance. Awake, O oh sleeper. And arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. God has called us to new life. With an alarm clock. Just tap on the shoulder. Wake up. Wake up. And the last point that we have is walk in wisdom, walk in wisdom. We need wisdom in order to navigate this life. We need wisdom. And he says in several different places that we ought to look carefully. Be careful. Do not be deceived. Many of these things are very deceptive. They're very, very deceptive, which is why wisdom is crucial. He says, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pay careful attention. Walk in wisdom. The Proverbs tells us that the fool is wise in his own eyes. We seek to know what God says and live in light of his word. His light, His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There's, there's an old song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. Anybody heard it? Like a few of you? Chad has. I appreciate that, Chad. Um, and I think that it's a great song, kind of. It implies that this little light of mine can exist by itself. And the text is telling us that we need to walk in wisdom together. Together. It says, speak these things to one another. One another. Have you ever been in a really, really dark room? And maybe you didn't have a light. How careful are you with the furniture that's in that room? I mean, you are like... The reality is if you think that we are not living in evil days, if that's what you think, you are not going to walk carefully. You won't. If everything seems light to you, you're going to struggle with this. You're going to struggle. And the awakening to this reality is saying, be wise. Make most of the time because the days are evil. Look careful. Be careful. Consider how you walk. The fool pays no mind to this. The fool is not considering these things, but be wise instead. And this little light of mine we need our light together to be wise. We need to be speaking these things to one another in wisdom, all of these things. But I love the simplicity. You've got to appreciate the simplicity of Paul. He says, basically, stop getting wasted, stop getting drunk, stop doing all of this for you, and trade that in for thanksgiving. Trade that in for life in the Spirit. Get drunk on the Spirit. Get full of the Spirit. And in Colossians 3.16, which is a parallel text to this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Where it says be filled with the Spirit, be being filled with the Spirit, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love that. Paul says, read the Bible. Read the Bible, pray, get in community, talk songs, speak songs, sing songs, Sing songs, talk songs, it's a lot. Do all of these things out of a posture that is thankful to God. Thanksgiving to God should mark our life together. Do you find yourself complaining more than giving thanks? Give thanks to God. I told you point three was going to be a tease for our next series. We're actually about to go into the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be talking about wisdom for several weeks. So come back, and we'll talk about it for a while. That's a lot of vegetables for us to chew on together. But let me encourage you back in in verse 1. Paul says that all of this imitation, all of our life is lived as dearly loved children. As dearly loved children. As a parent, how often do you correct your child? Do you love your child? Yes, of course, you love your child. You want what's best for your child. Our Heavenly Father, even more so, loves us and wants what's best for us. But I think it's important that we remember this right at the end, that we receive our identity. We don't perform our identity. Our identity isn't rooted in our performance. It's rooted only in the performance of Christ. And everywhere you look in the world, in your jobs, everywhere, it's based on meritocracy. You've got to earn it. You've got to. That's the default. The default identity is performance-based. But when I survey the wondrous cross, when I behold the empty tomb, I remember the glorious promise that we are forgiven of all sexual sin that we have done. We are forgiven of all of the greed that still lies in our hearts. We are forgiven of all the careless words that we've spoken. Why? Because the tomb didn't stay empty. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. The check cleared, the payment was made. It went through, not like my checks that bounce. The check cleared, the payment was made. When we read this list of sins, many of us get uneasy and afraid. If you are in Christ, our sin is great. His mercy is greater, is greater than all of our sin. You don't know what I did this morning, you may say. You don't know what I did last night. You don't, know what I, you don't know my life. I know the life of Christ. He is the perfect substitutionary atonement for you. Because he's the perfect substitutionary atonement for me. My, the president of uh, the seminary I attend, he said this, your mess was your adoption application. I love that. Our mess is what we bring. Everything else is brought to us by Christ. There's no need to hide. But maybe part of you is saying and accusing you even now as a daughter and son of God that you are an imposter, that you're an imposter. You don't know. I struggle with these things. There is one who would accuse you, telling you that brokenness disqualifies you. When you're broken, hear me, brokenness over sin is a confirmation that you love him back, not a disqualification from being a child. It is not. It is a confirmation. This is our God. This is our Father. He loves us, calls us into light, calls us into walking in wisdom by the Spirit. So this morning, if you are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, come to me. Stop striving, trying to earn the love that I already secured for you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The invitation is here for us to become who we are in Christ. So let's walk in love and light and in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even now you would work in our hearts to give us a sweet assurance that you love us And that even these things that we fail at constantly and we struggle with and we wrestle with in this life will one day no longer be struggles for us. Father, we ache and we long for home. So Father, I pray for those who this morning do not know you as Father. Father, I pray that you would work even now in their hearts to behold the glory of Christ. He has done it. He has done it. He has accomplished salvation. There is no greater, there is no greater gift, there is no greater event in all human history. This is the most significant. Do not let us skate by these moments without considering you, Father. Work in our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen.